0: But it was there I went and I saw this little boy. Um, He had no clothes on, he was about 10, and he was sitting in the dirt and leaned over and drool, he was drooling, he looked so sad, he had sores all over his head between his feet. I thought, is this leprosy, what is this? And I found out the night that we had arrived after that party, I heard screaming and crying in the village, and it was his mother who had passed away that night that we arrived.
1: Hi, my name is Jordan Lyarly, and I am from Marietta, Georgia, and I am a Christian school teacher and disciple maker. Jesus has done some amazing things in my life, which I'm grateful for, and I'm grateful for how the Lord used the compelled podcast to keep me in the fight when hope seemed lost. So enjoy today's episode. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to COMPELLED, where we use gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Our last episode was with Cheyenne Caldwell, a young firefighter struggling with how to live for God while living in the world. When suddenly, while battling a roaring fire, he plunged through a roof headfirst and into a raging inferno and immediately knew he was going to die. This week, our guests are Steve and Susan Vinton. For the last 30 years, Steve and Susan have fulfilled a unique calling, serving as the hands and feet of Christ to rural communities in Africa. So gather around, lean in, and join us for another compelling story from the Kingdom of God. Several months ago, I came into contact with Steve and Susan, and I was immediately intrigued by what they do. They live in Africa year-round, but thankfully, they had an upcoming trip to Texas. And about a month ago, we sat down together at a mutual friend's house. Now, before we dive into the story, let me give you the setting for where much of it takes place. And in case it's helpful, you can even pull up a map of Africa on your phone. You'll hear two countries mentioned. The first is Congo, which used to be called Zaire, but eventually was renamed to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's right in the center of Africa, below the Saharan Desert, and it's the third largest country on the continent. The second country is Tanzania, which is due east of Congo and borders the Indian Ocean. It's also home to Mount Kilimanjaro and the Serengeti Wildlife Preserve. About a third of the country is Muslim, a quarter is Roman Catholic, Another quarter is Protestant, and the rest is made up of Animus or other religions. Both countries are full of natural resources and potential, but unfortunately, both are very poor. About a hundred years ago, in the 1920s, Steve's grandparents left America and moved to Congo as part of a wave of missionaries who felt called to take the gospel to people who had not yet heard it. They raised four children in the village where they lived in Eastern Congo. And those four kids, including Steve's father, eventually immigrated back to the United States, but the parents stayed behind in Congo. Eventually, Steve was born here in the States in 1960. He grew up in a Christian home, committed his life to the Lord when he was a teenager, and for the most part, lived a pretty normal American life. But that began to change in the summer of 1976.
2: I was a bookworm. I would have been very content here in America. I felt that there was something that God wanted me to do, that it might be getting involved in politics. It might be causing some kind of change here in America. And a very spectacular, unusual thing happened when I was 16 years old. Somebody sent me out to Africa to meet my
1: grandparents. Had you not met them before?
2: Never. They went off to Africa and never came back here to America. So I didn't know who these people were that I just heard about. And I'm 16 years old and I take off and I go off to Africa and I go to meet them. And that's where I met my grandmother. That's where I met my grandfather. And, and when when that sent everything in a different direction for me, I, I spent 45 days traveling with my grandfather, going village to village, and he was a doctor. It was like out of the movies kind of thing, you know, treating literally maybe five, six hundred, a thousand people, and he'd be working with them all. And then at night, there was the evangelistic meeting, and and all these people would come, and he would preach at night. And then after all that was finished, he and I would sit around the fire, and he'd tell me all the stories of what it was like when he first went out to Africa. That exposure, God used that to send my life in a totally different direction. I had my life well planned out, everything that I thought God wanted me to do, and it didn't include going there. I was suddenly exposed to a world that I could not have even imagined existed.
0: My dad was born with a kidney disease. He was an experiment with a kidney transplant back in 1963. Uh, An 18-year-old girl was killed in a accident a car accident and she donated her kidneys and my dad received one of them and i was sent here to texas actually to be with my grandparents and they thought he would die and when he didn't die he flew to texas and it was a big newspaper story that you know a man He was to die, comes and takes his daughters. You know, I had no idea as a child. With a kidney transplant, that bought him two years. And then he died when he was 34, leaving my mom as a widow with two children and working full time. And people were very kind to me. And I think people knowing our situation, like in Sunday school and church, everyone, you know, there wasn't a time that I didn't know Jesus was with me. And, you know, I was always talking to God. It was like, I remember, like it was a telephone or something. God, may I talk to you? And um, now can I talk to my dad? (laughs) You know, Um, I'm really thankful for the people in our church who invested in me and loved me. And people were praying for me from the time I was very young. My mother remarried an amazing man um, who will be 98 next month. And he works full time, so we don't retire in our family. And he... What I learned from my stepdad is that love is a choice. And I think that's part of my concept of God, that God chose to love us. He didn't have to. And so anyways, this church had an outreach to Tacati, Mexico. You'd have to earn points. You'd have to sell Christmas greens. I'm really a really good salesperson. And um, so you get the privilege to go mix cement down in Mexico. You know, they probably could mix the cement a whole lot better than me. But I got to go down there as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, and we try and go every year. And I just loved it. The whole idea of my favorite part was going to visit people in their homes. And um, it was so formative. Um, that time. I'm very grateful for the church. But anyways, everything was leading me to Africa. I had always wanted to be a Peace Corps volunteer, and I was— you,
1: knew you as a kid, you knew you wanted to go to Africa specifically. It wasn't yes. like South America. No, nope, or...
0: Africa. And I wanted to make the world a better place. How general does that, you know? I was just— um, I'm your typical Peace Corps volunteer, you know, idealistic. Um, I was always interested in Africa. I'm very grateful for the teachers in high school where you could choose. We had little mini courses, and I always chose the ones on Africa. I was just fascinated with it. And in college, I had Dr. Yoder, who is African Studies, and I learned everything from him. and And he wrote me a letter of recommendation for the Peace Corps. But Peace Corps, you don't get to choose where you're going. And they chose me for Zaire. I was placed in Lamera off of Lake Tanganyika. I was up in the mountains. And that was the site of the second war from Rwanda and Zaire Eastern Congo. I lived right in that village. Those people, the hospital that just opened up when I was in Peace Corps, was beautiful. Um, Everyone was killed. In that, And I would walk up into the mountains where the Banyamalenge, I guess they're called, up there, and there was just something about it. There's so much hate. They're always nice to me, but so much hate. And what will bring peace to these places where there's so much hate if it's not God and the Holy Spirit working in people's hearts? Mm. I move from, you just cannot do good works. You need to work on the souls of people. Um supernatural forgiveness. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness. I couldn't do it without the Holy Spirit. And so that's when I started thinking, you know, be comfortable with missions. Peace Corps was really tough, but I grew, and it was such great preparation for the future. During 1984, the State Department— Put out word that there was going to be this virus. There was this virus called HIV, and it was going to wipe out the youth of Africa. So be sure to tell everyone in your classroom about HIV. You know, it's like, okay, here I am. I'm no, I can't talk about that. You know, I was terrified, but I never saw any HIV while I worked in Congo ever, ever, ever. And um, but I prayed at that time in 1984. It sounded so bad. It's like, Lord. Please let me be part of the solution to this terrible problem that's going to come up, that's going to wipe out people.
1: While Susan was volunteering with the Peace Corps, Steve had continued to make intermittent trips to Africa to help with the mission work his grandparents had begun. And during one of those visits, he met Susan. They eventually began writing letters to each other from opposite sides of the world, were married in 1988, and a couple years later moved permanently to Congo to serve full-time. After we had worked
2: for a number of years in Congo, there was the war that came. And in that great whirlwind, we ended up in the neighboring country of Tanzania. And when we showed up there, it was like being in a, in a new Africa, a different, a completely different from where we had been. Where we were, there were all these schools, primary schools, secondary schools, show up in Tanzania, The wonderful people took us in during the war. But their kids, we couldn't start a medical clinic. Nobody had gone beyond the seventh grade. There wasn't anybody to be a nurse to work with us. I mean, there were good people, but their kids, their kids couldn't get beyond learning to read and write. And it wasn't that they weren't smart. It wasn't that they didn't want an education. There simply were no schools. It was a poor country. There, There were primary schools. Well, that, for me, I mean, I, 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 we're living with these people. They've taken us in. They're kind to my wife. They're wonderful to my kids. And I look it over at their kids, and
1: and there's no future in this. It was an eye-opening moment for the Ventons. Unlike in America, where virtually every child has the opportunity to complete their schooling all the way to the 12th grade, in Tanzania... Most children only receive an education through the 7th grade in their local villages. Secondary schools, meaning 8th through 12th grade, only existed in the largest cities. That meant when children in villages finished the 7th grade, they took a national exam, and only the top scorers were chosen to go to the city to finalize their education, where perhaps they might even have the opportunity to go to college someday. All the other children would stay behind in their home villages with few options other than to live as subsistence farmers for the rest of their lives. And unlike in America, where the difference between completing high school and eventually getting a good job that can provide for a family isn't as pronounced, in rural Tanzania, that education gap can be the difference between breaking out of a cycle of generational poverty or not. And the Vintons believed that the teachings of Christ encompassed all of life, including helping those in need. They couldn't simply stand by.
2: For me, I was helping the kids out with a little bit of math, and they took the national exams. Four days of tests. they take the national exams, and then we waited for the results to come out. Who would get chosen to go to the eighth grade? Not who would get chosen to go to college or who would get to work on a map. Who would get to go to the eighth grade? Out of the village where we were, they chose two kids that year. Some villages they chose one. In some villages, they didn't choose anyone. And and they were the country was doing the best it could. They'd send these kids away. They'd go to boarding school. They'd be sent far away to be far away from their families to get the chance to go to school. Well, you know, I looked at that. You know, I said, this is not right. The world should not be this way. And you know, it doesn't matter if the whole world doesn't care. This is this place that God plopped us in. And here we are, and this situation is not right. And so the next thing I knew, Susan and I, are, were on a Saturday afternoon on a side of a hill talking to probably a thousand people who showed up. And I stood up and I said, you know, I, we're guests in your country. We ran away from the war. You know, when we were there in Congo, we had 160 primary schools. We had 62 high schools. We had 30,000 kids in our schools. We didn't wait for anybody to come build schools for us. We didn't wait for any big charities. We didn't wait for, for the government or the United Nations or anybody like that to come build. We built our own schools. Let's build a school for your kids so that everybody gets to come. The kids who are chosen, they can go away. All the other kids, the unchosen ones, let them come. And... It was a, it was an incredible thing. They, they, they did it. We started out, we started out with
0: twelve.
2: We started out with twelve kids. At the end of four years, we had six hundred and two. Um, we went to every village. We want every boy to come, every girl to come. You've got shoes, come. You don't have shoes, it doesn't come to school. And you know, for a missionary, what would I? Re- I could go to the little church in the village. On Sunday and preached uh, 50, or I could have chapel with 602. <laughs> Most of these kids had never been in the door of a church in their lives. Um, this was the great opportunity. That was uh, it was wonderful. Was I felt, and it didn't matter if it didn't matter if the rest of the world didn't care about this. Those kids mattered. And we had the opportunity and we could do it. And we worked with their parents, we built those classrooms, we got them up. We were always building, always more
1: classrooms because there were more kids coming. After four years, the school was thriving and self-sustaining. Hundreds of children were now being educated and being exposed to the gospel, both explicitly and implicitly. But now, the war in Congo that had originally driven the Vintons away had finally ended, and they were preparing to move back. When out of the blue they were visited by two of the very first graduates from their village school, and they had a question.
2: We were there at the house, and Godfrey and Emmanuel came, and he came to see us there at the house that day, and he said, um, word has gone all, all over the village that you guys are leaving. And we understand, the, war, the war's over, and you guys can go home.
1: Home, oh, meaning Congo. Yeah,
2: that was our home. And, you know, I mean, that's what we had told everyone in the village. We ran away from the war. We're here in your village, and we worked with them to build the school and, you know, here is now where we are. And we lived with them for, it was four, four years. years. You know, but he came in and he said, we want you to know that you didn't waste your time. Because we have this great idea. We're going to start this organization. It's going to be called Village Schools Tanzania. And what we're going to do is, we're going to go to villages just like you came to our village here. And we're going to work with people. And we're going to build schools that are going to be just like this school. It's going to be a school where everybody gets to come. It'll be the school for all the unchosen people. And I said, so we know you have to go, but, but we want to say thank you. And we want you to know that we're going to do this. Um, and if you would stay with us and do it with us, it would be even better.
1: <laughs> and so just dropping that one, like on
2: top
0: yes. of you. Like, oh, yeah. way.
2: <laughs> but, but, you know, the truth is, is that the the dream of what they wanted to do it was so compelling. And so, and, you know, here they had, they got an education, but they wanted other people to also get it. And, you know, we, we could have gone back to Congo, but you know, it was like, looked at it and it, there were all those churches already. There were all those schools already. There, were, there was all, we would go and we would add to something that was already thriving and going. And here was an opportunity to go to villages where kids weren't getting any chance to go to school. And by going there and telling people that we cared enough about them, to work with them so their kids would get to go to school, we'd have wonderful opportunities to share the gospel with them. We'd have wonderful opportunities to be involved in their lives. How do you go to a village? I I mean, seriously, how do you go to to a village and share the gospel with people? Uh, Look at my sign, your God is false, mine's true. Can I spend the night and tomorrow I'll preach to you? I I mean, you know, I mean, it's not, it's like, people think this is so easy. I mean, how are we going to take the gospel to places where people haven't heard? Well, what I found was that I can go to any village and I can tell people that I care about their kids and that I think their kids should get a chance to go to school just like kids everywhere. Not just kids in cities, but Kids in villages also have the right to go to school. Uh, You can get 500 people come. And then when you tell them you really care about their kids, you know, I have two sons. The fact is, is when our kids are going, if you like my kids, I like you. If you don't like my kids, I don't like you. I mean, you know, this, this is natural. This is human. Well, what we discovered is we can go anywhere.
1: Steve and Susan felt that God's hand was leading them to embrace this new venture. They wouldn't be the leaders of this organization. No, that would be Godfrey and Emanuele, the two young men who had graduated from their little village school. Steve had learned from his grandfather's half century on the continent that the only way any endeavor would survive, whether it was a church, school, or medical clinic, was if it was run from day one by people from that community. Rather, Steve and Susan would serve as strategic advisors, giving counsel and expertise where they could. And initially, they thought that they would be focused on sharing and living out the gospel only through education, but they soon found out that they were wrong. More on that after the break. Summer is here, and so is the chance to take a breather from school. And there's a decent chance that the subject your student is most excited to take a break from is math. But it doesn't have to be that way, especially if you're using CTC Math. Their focus is helping your student learn at the pace that's best for them. Every lesson is fully online with interactive questions and clear explanations. And their video tutorials take difficult concepts and break them down into digestible ideas. But here's the crazy part, they have a 12-month money-back guarantee. That's right, you can use CTC Math for an entire year. And if you don't like it, or it didn't work out for you, or if you're just unethical, which as a Compelled listener, I hope you're not, then you just shoot them an email and tell them that you like your money back, and they'll gladly refund your entire purchase, no questions asked. There is literally no risk for an entire year. You can't beat that. Because their heart is to serve your family. That's why they sponsor Compelled, so that we can continue creating stories that will bless and encourage your family. And they wanna do the same for your students' math needs. So whether summer is a time for your student to catch up, keep up, or move ahead, CTC Math is there. Learn more at ctcmath.com. Again, that's ctcmath.com. You love Christian testimonies, otherwise you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who have already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliott, whose husband was murdered by the Aca tribe in Ecuador but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Tin Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M, compelledpodcast.com YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Welcome back to Compelled. Steve and Susan Vinton had agreed to remain in Tanzania and help advise two of their former students with a vision to build gospel-advancing secondary schools all across the country for the unchosen children who had not been selected by government schools. By 2005, these two former students, Godfrey and Emanuele, had left their small village in western Tanzania and moved 400 miles away to start their first school in another rural part of the country in a community of five close villages that had agreed to unite in this strange experiment. Over 70 days, the community donated land, made tens of thousands of bricks, and carried by hand several tons of foundation stones. And by April, the school opened to its first students. Steve had already moved to the community to help advise, and Susan followed a few months later with their two young boys. They were so excited to share the gospel in a new place, through explicit teaching and preaching, but also through living out the gospel message as the hands and feet of Christ, by caring for the needs of the poor, and by helping them break the chains of lifelong poverty. And while they originally thought that this portion of living out the gospel would be primarily through education, they soon discovered that God had something else in mind.
0: The community gave us a welcoming party. It was freezing cold because it's south of the equator and we're up in the mountains and there's clouds and there's rain. I was like, isn't there any place to go? We're going to freeze. I told Steve, you know, I'm willing to camp. There's no problem. What I didn't know is that the village had built us a house and they were pouring the cement down at the house while the welcoming party was happening. They needed us to stay up there longer and longer so they could finish. So, you know, there were no doors, no windows, you know, newly mushy cement and that was home and it was just it was really sweet of them it was cold I thought oh nobody's going to believe it we're going to freeze to death in Africa it was really cold but anyways we started you know there's no rainwater no electricity and it was camping we're living with Godfrey and Ema. my wonderful sister-in-law Karen came out to help me for 10 days to get it <laughs> to help us survive those first 10 days but anyways we needed this thing called water and um, four girls were chosen from the 183 kids who didn't have money for school fees. And so they would work for me after school. I would take care of them. I'd pay their school fees. And they came, and real sweet girls. And I didn't know their mothers. I didn't know anything about the community. And um, so Intula, who was from that original school before we started Village Schools with Godfrey and Ema, he was with us. And I said, okay, Intula, I want you to go— f- find their mothers and ask if it's okay that they stay with me after school and carry water and help me with, you know, to get food on the table. And so he disappeared. He didn't show up until the next day. Again, I have no idea where people are living. We're in the mountains. Or, yeah, it's 6,000 feet. And he comes back. He goes, Madam I've never seen such poverty as I saw yesterday. I was like, really? Well, in Tula, you're like, you're from poverty. You know, it's like, how bad could it really be? And he goes, oh, this is bad. And he says, please come. And we went to Elisa's house. And it was down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain. And as we're getting closer to the house, I see this mud hut that had fallen down. Um, it was halfway up, halfway down and we, uh, under the thatch, and I walk in there and there's a mother laying on the ground and a four-year-old laying on the ground and there's blood all over the ground. They had been coughing up blood. It's like, oh my gosh, um, this is bad. It's like, okay, we're gonna go and get medicine. You're gonna get better. You know, I've helped people over the years and they took the medicine and they did get better, uh, Lisa's mom and Ruti, her sister, the four-year-old. And people were so shocked that they got better, a little bit better, that they invited me to visit a grandmother who had pellagra, which is um, you know, something from drinking too many years and your skin looks horrific. But it was there I went and I saw this little boy. He had no clothes on, he was about 10, and he was sitting in the dirt and leaned over and drool. He was drooling, he looked so sad, he had sores all over his head between his feet. I thought, is this leprosy? What is this? And I found out the night that we had arrived after that party, I heard screaming and crying in the village and it was his mother who had passed away. That night that we arrived. And I said, you know, like, what happened? Everybody said, oh, malaria, oh, typhoid. You know, those were the two go to diseases in our village. So when somebody died, it's like, really? You know, I'm going to have to watch out about the water and malaria. There can't be malaria up here. We're at 6,000 feet. There are no malaria carrying mosquitoes at this area. And so, anyways, I looked at this little boy. We gave him an orange and he started to eat it. I said, you know, we're going to come back. We're going to make this kid. Where you're going to learn to walk, you're going to learn to talk. We're going to clean up those sores. You're going to, we're going to, we're going to fix this. And um, his name was Hezroni, and he responded to the love. He responded to the medicine. I learned um, his family was really the first family that welcomed me into the home, you know, the, or into the community. Hezroni's dad, and he had a sister Ajala and the little sister Tuma, Tumaini. Anyways, you know, Re- Hezroni got better. He responded to all the love, and he smiled, and we fed him every day. We brought him food, and people saw that Hezroni was getting better. And so they brought started bringing me other children.
1: As Susan began caring for children in their community, the school was already thriving, and the word was spreading far and wide, partly because what that community of five villages had done was unprecedented.
2: It was both exciting and exhilarating and incredible. I mean, you have you have all of these people who come out, um, carrying water, making bricks. I mean, it's it, it's not it's a lot of work. I mean, to make a brick, to carry stones. I mean, foundation stones are heavy. To carry a stone, put it on your head, carry it walk with it a kilometer, two kilometers, and then dump it down and then walk and go get another. I mean, this is hard, incredible labor. They got six classrooms up. We started out with 183 students. It was wonderful. And the thing that was great about it was that if we had had a bunch of people from America who had come and built the school, there'd probably still only be one school. But instead, it was like people at this other village, they were oh, Sawala's is what, uh, maybe 20, 20, kilometers. 20 kilometers away. Uh, they They came and they saw that those people had built their school. And it was like, well, we can build our school too. So they went and worked with them to build the second school. The third school, it was a kid from the village. <laughs> it was the kid from the village who came to our village there to visit his sister who was married to the director of the primary school. And when he came... You know, he's like, wow, you guys have a secondary school. How did this happen? And she said, oh, well, I mean, everybody came out. We made bricks. We hauled stones. The school is up. We got 183 students. He went back to the village. He went, it was 250 kilometers away. He went back there, told everybody. The next thing we knew, there were five old men who came. We've been sent by the village. I mean, what is it that, what do we have to do so we can get a school too? And I mean, we went there, held a big town meeting, and it was the same thing. Pick out a good piece of land. A good piece of land for your kids. Haul all the stones, get all the sand, make all the bricks. The water, you just have to have a plan for it. We'll need that to make the mortar every day. But you come up with that, and we believe God will provide the money for the metal roofing and the cement, and we'll get the school up.
1: After the physical school building was constructed, the Vintons would recruit teachers by traveling to universities in the cities and visiting with Christian student groups. There, they'd make the case to upcoming graduates to come and spend at least a year teaching in the rural villages. Their wages would be paid by the parents of the children, which meant it would be much less than what they could earn in the city with their newly minted college degrees. But this unique moment to cultivate gospel-advancing relationships with children and their parents far outweighed any momentary loss. As the opportunities to bring schools to more villages began to increase— So did the number of sick children from their local community that were being brought to Susan for help. But something wasn't adding up.
0: All of their symptoms were different. And I've learned over the years how you take care of sick children in Africa. It's, you know, a dewormer. You fix whatever, you know, sores, clean them up, give them food, milk, avocados, peanuts, and they'll get better. Well, all these kids got better, and then they got sick again. It's like, what's going on here? You know, by this time, I have worked in Africa over twenty years. I know, I know some things. It's like, what's going on? What's going on? So, like, I had about twelve kids at the time, and I was invited to an old woman's house. It's some twins, her twin grandchildren, were dumped on her doorstep at age one, and one was failure to thrive. And so, I was going to go see him. I went and saw him, but in that house, that little hut. There was a little boy in the corner, and he was what I learned later is stage four muscle wasting, and he had like burns on his trunk. And <laughs> I was like, forget you know the failure to thrive kid. We'll, we'll deal with that later. But it's like, what happened to that child? What? And he said, well, his parents are dead. He's living in an orphan led home. He's always been sick. It's like, okay. The woman who worked me, I now had a woman who could cook for me. Um, was a relative of his. And I gave her a letter to take to a hospital with the boys. And I said, I want the truth. What's wrong with this boy? And I've been in the village now for about five months. And uh, the clinician at the hospital said, um, this boy is HIV positive. Um, send to Lugoda, the tea plantation, about two hours away, for further testing and management. I was like, oh, my goodness, I am looking at the face of AIDS and it's like all these children I was helping, they were all HIV positive. And so I started sending them to this tea plantation. And within two weeks, I'm sending 50 people. The people trusted me. I love those kids. I got them out there, but first started with children, then the widows, then, um, you know, stupid young men, young women who got into trouble, and then the men who perpetuated this problem. What we learned later is about 35% of our adult population is um, HIV positive in our area because of the tea fields and the lumber industry. We counted it up you know about 95% of the houses in our area had at least one HIV positive person so you get a loved one who's very sick they return home to die and they're being cared for by their family, but they have no gloves. They don't know what they're dealing with. HIV looks different in each person until you, can, you have the eyes to see, yep, 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 yep. You know, that's most likely HIV. And you have victims swelling up and splitting open and bodily fluids are going into the mud. Grandma's walking into it. She has a, you know, got bit by a bug and then that goes into her system. And seven years later in our, our type of HIV, If you are infected today, about a week later you're going to have the flu-like type symptoms. And then at that time, your first couple of months is when you're most able to pass the virus. And it's undetectable if you get tested. And then it kind of goes dormant, but it slowly works and works and works and in about seven years you're going to have full-blown AIDS and it's going to be ugly. And it really is. I have never seen such human suffering as I have with the HIV pandemic but it's so easy to love someone who's in need. And over the years in Africa, there's always been kind of a, a disconnect. You know, it takes years to build relationships with people, but it's, here it was accelerated. It's like, here's a person who is dying and they want to live. They want to live to raise their children. And I am a mother and I want them to live to raise their children. And we connected at this different level. When someone is dying, And they'll look at me, and I always focused on their eyes because they were really hurting. I mean, very, very sick. And HIV is not pretty. You don't die serenely. It's awful. I'd look in their eyes, you know, and just they would look at me and ask me, what must I do to be saved? I was like, I can't believe it's like. Billy Graham moment. You know like and you know, you know my my strong point isn't linguistics, but I was able to talk to them in their language about the hope I had in my own heart.
2: That's where things have branched off going back. You know, we're we're called village schools. But part of the huge thing that we do is working with people who have HIV. Um, It's again, it's a problem we can do something about. You can either choose, you know, when Susan was talking about, you know, her father choosing. You can choose to love. You can choose to see human need and do nothing about it. You can also choose. You You can say that I will do something about this. You feel compelled to do something. And we feel compelled to get kids in school, but also the village where we showed up in. The fact of the matter is, is Susan's a teacher. I'm a teacher. She teaches English. I teach math. The teachers that we brought, we're there to teach. We say we're here to share the gospel in Africa through education. So we want to teach people and we want to share the gospel with them. But you can't live in that village and see what we saw and say, we're not here we're not here to care about HIV.
0: My dad, who died with his kidney disease, he had this medicine that lowered his—so he, he anti-rejection drugs, which he died of a fungus that the HIV-positive people get because of the low immune system. I think God used that also for me to be predisposed to loving people who with low immune systems that are hurting, who get these terrible diseases. But it was like God worked through me. I was just— you know, in Swahili, so you'd say, Chombo, I was just his vessel. And it would come out, and people would pray, and then it would connect them with the local church.
1: But while Susan was helping everyone she could reach, there were so many more people spread throughout the countryside that she was at a total loss about how she would even inform them that they might be carrying a deadly and contagious disease. But as it turned out, the perfect solution had just been assembled, which we'll hear more about right after the break. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of Apple Podcast's top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit WNG.org. The world tells young women to seek popularity, beauty, pleasure, or whatever will make them happy. Yet the more they chase after those worldly dreams, the emptier they become. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a special conference designed for mothers and daughters to encourage them that there is just one thing worth seeking after, Jesus Christ. The conference is called Seeking Christ and takes place at the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, September 20 and 21st. The conference is taught by Sarah Malley Hancock, the founder of Bright Lights Ministry and include skits, real life examples, studies for moms and daughters to do together, and bonus sessions by Ken Ham and Martin Isles from Answers in Genesis. Plus, you'll get to walk through the full-scale replica of Noah's Ark there at the Ark Encounter, which I've actually done and is incredible. Young women will be challenged to seek the Lord first in their lives, deepen their love for God's word, be rooted in their identity in Christ, gain vision for close family relationships, and shine their light brightly for the Lord. The primary focus is for young women ages 10 to 18 and their mothers, but of course women of all ages are welcome to come. Learn more at brightlightsministry.com. Again, that's brightlightsministry.com. Welcome back to Compelled. Susan knew that there was a massive HIV-AIDS pandemic going on right underneath everyone's noses. The problem was the local Tanzanian population had never even heard of HIV or AIDS. They just knew that a lot of people were getting sick and then dying a few years later. But the symptoms might look radically different from one person to the next. Susan could help victims seek treatment, but she was struggling to get the word out. But then it dawned on her that she already had access to the perfect group of people who could help her warn and educate the community quickly.
0: We mobilized the students to be change agents in their community. We started on weekends sending kids to the hospital about a two- or three-hour walk away with older kids to get a seminar on HIV get tested for HIV. And then on Monday after school, we would do a post-test party and we talk about what happened and what did they learn? Did it hurt? Was it valuable? And our big thing was, you can't recommend that somebody gets tested for HIV unless you've been tested yourself. So we mobilized the kids to get out there and to go home on breaks, on weekends, and tell everybody about this new disease that is there. And as I always said, it was a great time to have it because there's testing and there's treatment. It's all going to be free, and I'm providing the transport. So I started a busing company. I got a 29-seater coaster that we could shove 50 people in at any one time, and it went one time a day, two times a day, three times a day, taking people back and forth. I would start them out in Kibao, and they would test them for whatever, and if they were positive, they went over to the tea plantation for the antiretrovirals. Very expensive to run a buses, but God always provided. I never asked for money. I never. People found out what I was doing, and all of a sudden, the money just flowed in. A fifteen-year-old heard about what I was doing with bus tickets. I was, you know, she did a little project at school, and she earned enough money that I was able to buy my first bus. My first coaster.
1: This is a kid in the USA, so. Yes,
0: 15-year-old. And look what kids can do. Is it not amazing? And one of my former students ran the bus, and they would play music. Um, their favorite one was, Jesus Will Wipe Away All My Tears.
1: Years have passed since that first village school. And today, graduates from Tanzania have helped propel the work across the entire nation, but have also felt a call to go to neighboring countries, becoming missionaries in their own right, and have helped communities build dozens more schools across Eastern and Southern Africa. They've also started their own HIV AIDS clinic, which serves over 1400 people every month and is staffed by graduates from their own schools. But while it's exciting to celebrate the successes, the Vintons are the first to point out that building village schools and serving communities also brought many hardships and challenges. Yet the Vintons realized that this was actually a perfect opportunity to present an accurate picture of Christianity and not a watered-down version that promises only prosperity.
2: You know, it's it's one thing to talk about the glorious creation of all these schools. What about the village where people came out, thousands of people, and they made bricks? And then there's a freak rainstorm that comes two days later and wipes them all out. I mean, now that is painful. Those are the things that break people's hearts. Terrible things that happen— you build a school and then the kids are in there studying and then lightning strikes the school and you have two kids who get killed. Those are things that that hurt a community. They 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 do more than just hurt those kids and their families. They hurt the whole community. But if you've presented to people that the gospel is that God is here to give you the abundant perfect life, well then you have to have an explanation for when something bad happens. The fact of the matter is, is that for Christian people, their kids do get killed in car accidents. Christian people, they do get cancer. Bad things happen to us just like they happen to everybody else. And as I, when I'm talking with my students, I say, imagine for a moment if it were different. If it really were true that everything for a Christian is perfect from here on out, well, then it would require absolutely no faith to become a Christian at all. It wouldn't be faith. It would be a simple buy your ticket and get on. But that is not how it is. The same bad things happen to us that happen to everybody else. And sometimes if we follow the teachings that Paul gives us, the fact is is that it's a privilege. It's an honor. It's an honor to suffer. Hmm. That's not a very happy message. But the fact is, is that when our students have gone out to go to new villages to start schools, um, this is hard to go live with a people that you don't know. Godfrey and Emanuele got on a bus and came all the way across the country to go to a place where they didn't know anyone. To show up in that village and, and have people take them in and tell people that if you make bricks and haul stones, we can have a school. Those were hard days. We would always say we're together, Katika Shidana, Katika Raha. You know, we're together in the good days and the bad. the good days are the days that you eat. There are days when you don't eat so much. The fact is, is being a Christian is not all a bed of roses, yeah. and being a missionary is not all a bed of roses.
1: It's just not. Today, the Vintons are on a mission to not only continue bringing the gospel to more remote villages in Africa but also to exhort Christians everywhere to take greater ownership in following the commands of Christ to care for the needy and the poor. And it's only after studying
2: that I've come to understand the church never thought this before. This is a peculiar error in the American church at a certain period of time in which we abdicated our responsibility. We said that government would take care of the poor. And the the government would do social security, the government would do welfare, the the government would do everything for the sick, the government would take care of the orphans, you know, but we we are left with a bad thing. We gave away our birthright. James says very clearly, the religion that's pleasing to God is the one that takes care of the widows and the orphans. We don't have any widows and orphans to take care of because we told the government to do it. But I go back to clearly, I mean, my grandfather, the way, you know, it's it's so clear. Wherever the gospel does, wherever the gospel goes, it impacts all of life. And the fact is, is I have to care about the poor. I'm a Christian.
1: I cannot. I cannot say it's someone else's problem. As our conversation came to a close, I asked Steve if villages ever push back on having an explicitly Christian school built in their community and openly sharing the gospel with their children.
2: They won't say, we don't want you to do this. I mean, because I've been in the, in the meetings. They won't say, we don't want you to do this. What they will say is, why do you have to do this? Why can't you just teach? I can't have teachers come and only tell part of what they know. And, and then I turn over in the village and I say, look, here's Godfrey. You saw him drive the car. Godfrey, who taught you how to drive a car? You did, say, Yes. How dare I come to his village and I eat food in his village, and then I don't teach him how to drive a car when I know how to drive a car. And Emmanuel, who taught you about God? You did. Yes. How dare I come to his village and eat his mother's food, and then I don't tell him what I know. So I, I put it in a way that people can understand. I mean, I realize that we can use, uh, you know, proselytizing. You can say it's sharing our lives. You know, This isn't a theoretical thing. These are people we care about. We care about their kids going to school. We care about them having good health. We care about eternity. They're my friends. I want them to be in heaven with me. I'm going to share. In the end, though, I don't know why some villages don't have us come. There's a village right now, (laughs) the village of Maduma. I don't know exactly, it was six or eight years ago, they called us and we went to their village. We told them, we did all the questions, the everything. They didn't build the school. Um, This year, they sent a delegation to come and see Godfrey. And they said, you know, we just made a mistake. We see what's happened in the other villages that built schools. Our kids are going nowhere. Everybody else, they're going off the university. They're getting jobs, they're doctors, they're doing everything. And their villages are all making and we're just stuck where we were. Can we just be forgiven? Can we get a second chance? And you know, I mean, what a great, you know, if you ever want an object lesson to talk about God, I mean, you know, God is the god our God's the god of second chances, you know. Um, you know
1: what? They're gonna have a school. As I've thought about Steve and Susan's ministry over the last 30 years, I'm reminded of Ephesians 2.10, which says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or as 2 Corinthians 5.20 reminds us, that we are ambassadors of Christ. And the same way that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, sought out the sick and poor to help them, so should we. And yes, they need spiritual healing the most, because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? But Jesus also demonstrated that one of the most effective ways to reach someone's soul is to show them, by your actions, how you care. This year, village schools celebrated their 18th birthday and just opened their 74th school a month ago, with more on the way. They've now spread to the surrounding countries of Malawi, Zambia, Uganda, and Kenya, and have graduated over 10,000 young adults. All of these children were the unchosen ones, the ones who most certainly would have never gone to school otherwise or escaped poverty. But instead, many of them have now gone to university, earned degrees, and then come back to their home villages to become teachers, run medical clinics, open businesses, and more. Thousands of lives have been changed. And the same thing is happening with the work at the HIV-AIDS clinic. Thousands who were previously suffering are now able to manage their disease. Mother-to-child transmission has been cut to almost zero, and countless children who would have eventually been affected with HIV have avoided it entirely. When the Vintons started a school for the unchosen children all those years ago, they were just trying to be faithful Christians, acting as the hands and feet of Jesus to their local community. But now, one by one, person by person, entire groups of people and entire communities are experiencing transformation. And in a small way, even that is a picture of the gospel. How Jesus comes to us, the forgotten ones, the ones who weren't good enough, and he chooses us. If you'd like to learn more about Steve and Susan or Village Schools, just visit villageschools.org. And maybe God might even prompt you to go and teach with them for a summer or a year. Again, you can learn more about all of that at villageschools.org. You can also go to our website and pull up the show notes for this episode. We'll include links, videos, behind-the-scenes photos, and more. That's at compelledpodcast.com. If you've been blessed by this story, then please take a minute and send it to a friend you think should hear it. And quick housekeeping note we only have two more episodes left in this season but we have some fun plans in the works for this seasonal break and we'll reveal more over the next two episodes also if you haven't yet seen them check out our new topics pages on our website these are pages addressing various topics that we encounter in the christian walk like forgiveness suffering adoption other religions and more we've collected some of our best episodes that address these topics as well as relevant scripture books, articles, sermons, and placed all of them in a single place. Hopefully, these can be a resource for you, your church, small groups, friends, co-workers, or anyone else looking for answers. Just head to our website, compoundpodcast.com, and look for the topics page. Today's episode was edited by Will Jackson, sound engineering by Zach Fowler, and our associate producer is my sweet wife, Sarah Hastings. Special thanks to my friend, Deb Gore, for introducing me to the Vintons. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from our next episode with Melody Green, who was raised in the Jewish tradition, but during the 70s married a fiery young singer named Keith Green, who was exploring the teachings of Jesus, a Jewish rabbi who claimed to be the son of God. Alongside her husband, Melody embarked on a personal quest to live out a life of sold out devotion to this Messiah. But when God blessed their efforts and grew their ministry with meteoric speed, the unthinkable happened thrusting Melody into a season of having to trust God as her shepherd in a valley of dark shadows. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story two weeks from now. We'll see you then.
0: By the time I was walking out of the woods, the fire department guys were just coming in. I was getting lifted out and they were just coming in over the fence and they looked at me and I'm sure I just looked a big mess. And they said, oh good, they're survivors. They thought I was the survivor. That's what they said to me, oh good, they're survivors. And I said, nope, nobody survived.
1: One last thing before I go, if you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th,